The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Why do the wicked reject God? Why do they think to themselves that you won't find out? But you do see. You do see troublemaking and grief, and you do something about it. The helpless leave it all to you. You are the orphan's helper. Break the arms of those who are wicked and evil. Seek out their wickedness until there's no more to find. The Lord rules forever and always. The nations will vanish from God's land. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama MD, joined today by the wonderful Al and Spencer. Thank you all for joining us uh, once again. This is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. There are so many different ways of interpreting the story of Jacob's Ladder, and we're going to dive into just a couple of, just about 19 of <laughs> <laughs> different ways that this story has been interpreted uh, throughout history. So we'll go ahead and dive right on in. Genesis 28, 10-22. Jacob left Beersheba and set for Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there. When the sun had set, he took one of the stones at that place and put it near his head. Then he lay down there. He dreamed and saw a raised staircase, its foundation on earth and its top touching the sky, and God's messengers were ascending and descending on it. Suddenly the Lord was standing on it and saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will become like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west, east, north, and south. Every family of earth will be blessed because of you and your descendants. I am with you now. I will protect you everywhere you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done everything that I have promised you. When Jacob woke up from his sleep, he thought to himself, The Lord is definitely in this place, but I didn't know it. He was terrified and thought, This sacred place is awesome. It's none other than God's house and the entrance to heaven. After Jacob got up early in the morning, he took the stone that he had put near his head, set it up as a sacred pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. He named that sacred place Bethel, though Luz was the city's original name. Jacob made a solemn promise. If God is with me and protects me on this trip I'm taking, and gives me bread to eat and clothes to wear, and I return safely from my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. The stone that I have set up as a sacred pillar will be God's house, and everything you give me, I will give a tenth back to you. So, first off in this story, the thing that I am finding most interesting is the fact that it seems to have a parallel. This parallel here between um, this staircase that is ascending into heaven that is a staircase that really seems to be descending from heaven, right? That this is the entrance to heaven that stands in stark contrast to the story of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel being an attempt from earth to reach up to heaven, 
And our friends, Pastor Kuma, or some of our more Reformed folks, would tell us that this story is the foundation for this idea that humanity cannot reach God on our own. That instead, the mystery of grace, the beauty of grace, is that it comes completely from heaven. That it's just something that comes from heaven and reaches down to us here on earth, not the other way around. Whereas the Tower of Babel was an attempt for the very few to get up to the top and attain their own heaven, um, replace God, kill God. Here, God is reaching down onto the earth and seems to be reaching out and building this special relationship with Jacob. Part of the reason that Bethel is this really important thing to bring up again with this difference of the Tower of Babel versus Bethel is the fact that Bethel, after the split of Israel and Judah, one of the most important emphases of Deuteronomy and what's called the priestly version of the Torah that has been redacted and we see have been redacted in these very specific ways are that they emphasize the importance of only worshiping God in Jerusalem. That Jerusalem is the one special place where you're able to build this connection. But here in the text, Bethel is very specifically set up as a place to worship God, as a place to have this direct connection with heaven. Whereas Jerusalem is trying to assert its own authority, its own supremacy, its own power, Bethel is very specifically named here as another place and becomes the site of what in in First Kings would be called an apostate temple, like the place where you know those dirty outsiders will go and worship. And this that that difference of location to worship is what becomes the underlying difference between the Jewish people, the descendants of Judah, and the Samaritans. The Samaritans are the people who were when Israel was conquered were the poor people who were left behind after the Israelite elites were taken out. And so there's this conflict between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people that continues to be about where they worship and how they worship the same God in very different ways. One of the things that I love about this story is the fact that I think this is very specifically saying you have this system that is set up to exclude and God's system is set up to include. You have the system that, compared to the Tower of Babel, which was all about control, it was all about fascistic rule, that this system is about someone with power giving up that power to everyone. And I think that this is one of the great stories of universalism that are being told here in the very beginning of this book, that rather than excluding, rather than saying, only I have the knowledge here, only I know how the know-how, we say, no, God's grace has extended to all of us. And when we believe that everyone is saved, when we believe that everyone ultimately ends up in heaven, that develops a much different kind of politics for us than, than it would otherwise. I'm very interested in y'all's takes on what universalism means for our politics. I think my take on universalism is not like the common take because I do draw from like other faiths like Buddhism and stuff like that. Like I think God's grace is is extended everybody, but that doesn't mean everybody can get it in this lifetime if they don't like do the kind of work and things that they need to do to get there. Yeah. You know, because there, there's plenty of like evangelical fundamentalism that just says, oh, just say, I accept Jesus and you're in. Like, and that's, you gotta, there's there's like actual action associated with love that it, yeah. it's gotta take to, to get you there. 
But I I do think that this passage in particular does lean towards that because I don't see this specifically saying like, I am just with you here in Bethel. I am with you everywhere and that you can access like the the stairway to heaven anywhere, especially like, because this this point in Jacob's life, uh, it's a low point. Uh, It's a real low point. His brother wants to kill him. His ma basically kind of disowned him to protect him, but not really because she caused the whole thing. And then his dad's dead. So he's alone, jobless, in a new land. It's, it's, a, it's a rough spot. Also on his way to find a wife, just to throw another emotion in there. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's alone and descendantless. So what, what, is, he, what is he doing? <laughs> Well, and you know that that insight, I think, is really helpful when we are are turning to say, like, what does he actually mean by in this place? Right? Obviously, he's talking specifically about the place that he's in, but I think that more importantly, he's talking about this emotional place, right? He's talking about this way of being that is very foreign <laughs> to him, just like this place that he is in, this place where he is at this very low point. I don't think that Bethel is what's important here, right? I think it is that you're exactly right there, Al, that God is meeting Jacob where he's at in the midst of this despair, and that is the place that is truly awesome, that he is nothing, and that is where God says, no, everything is to be found here in this terrifying moment. That relates to a lot of the ways that the latter has been interpreted throughout history. You know, the relationship between the latter and prayer, the relationship between um, language and the brain and trauma and all those psychosomatic uh, features, the, the way that the latter has been interpreted um, in, in the way that we should inter- interpret the Bible, the, the latter as the great chain of being, the latter as covenants and ordinances that keep us together, the latter as this thing that changes one location from a terrible one to a good one. And all of these different interpretations of the latter are rooted in this idea that it is God's condescension, right? God's willingness to come down to us at our level, right? Which finds its culmination in the person who is born not here at Bethel, but at the very closely named Bethlehem. Right? Rather than being the temple of God or the house of God, Jesus is born in the house of bread instead, the source of life just a little ways away. So anyway, um, I'm very interested in, in hearing more about the latter and prayer um, as you all have researched it and get more into some of the psychological uh, aspects of this, of this story as well. There's a whole thing in the Midrash where it, it kind of like, passes down sort of an oral tradition of like this prayer ascension of the ladder. And mm. I found it really interesting because as someone who's like had a lot of trauma and done a lot of work towards healing that trauma, the steps of the prayer are very interestingly like kind of related to steps in at least my own trauma healing and sort of uh, the understanding like my own spiritual path was opened up on my trauma healing journey. So it just, it was very interesting. There's four rungs uh, in this midrash. And I I found a great essay by uh, Yosef Y. Jacobson. So if you want to further check it out, that's my source. But the first rung is the world of action, which is 
a prayer and a commitment to towards changing your habits on like a tangible behavioral level and sort of talks about like your inner beast, which for me, I connected that towards like when I was deep in my PTSD, I was a creature of like reacting like there, you know, there was there were triggers and I reacted and there weren't any sort of like deeper thought processes involved. But that step is also like a harm reduction layer uh, that I saw. Well, and and the world of action being like, you know, how you actually show up in the world to other people. To borrow a phrase, rather than your intent, it's your impact, right, Mm -hmm. that is happening here in the world. And so that like affecting how you do those things is that first rung on on the ladder um, that's being talked about here. Exactly. And then the... The next rung on the ladder is the world of formation, where it examines, like, why you react in that matter, the formations of your psyche, and it takes a lot of introspection, humility, honesty, and self-learning in this level, because you're trying to shake off, like, like a false reality, almost, about, like, the world. So I, I kind of connected that through, like... Like I had a stage, like once I decided I wanted to get better because I knew I was like, I like I was just wilding out, reacting. I felt like I was out of control. So once I got through and settled into harm reduction, then I was like, all right, why do I behave in these ways and feel these things? And I, I really explored that through journaling. And it was like this this logical stage after like coming a bit out of a reactionaryism stage. And then Joseph uh, Jacobson had a great line um, that said, alienation from God means alien- alienation to self. So this is like your real, like, honest look at yourself stage. And then the third rung is the world of creation. And it, it's this uh, prayer stage where you're you're empowered to, like, recreate yourself. And also cast off this attachment to self, but like more so the self that has been formed by like other people almost. Because I I know like some of the things that I cast off were like some real internalized misogyny that was like really nasty and impacted all my relationships, like platonic, romantic, whatever, but also like how I treated myself this world of formation that, that Jacobson is talking about here is really like, you know, like you were saying, Al, it, it's all these traumas that we're carrying around, that sometimes that we don't even realize, right? Um, my priest was recently talking about sometimes when we come into spiritual language that we're not comfortable with, and the Bible is full of spiritual language that I am not comfortable with, like, we need to sit with that and try to figure out what is it that is happening here that that's that's influencing me in this way? Why am I having this negative reaction to it? And that specifically is, is God the Father to me, right? Um, and I had to go and sit there and undo the ways that my father was very abusive to me. And so I have to confront that and say, well, what is a better vision of a father because if I'm making God into the vision of my father, 
then I've shunted God into a very, very narrow thing, right? But my fatherhood looks a lot different than my father's fatherhood did, right? And God's fatherhood looks a lot bigger than my fatherhood, right? And so I, you know, I just was praying this prayer, the general thanksgiving the other day, that the opening line is, Almighty God, Father of all mercies. And as I was praying that the other day, I just had this image of God sitting there reading a book to a bunch of little mercies that are sitting around him as he's rocking in his chair and just laughing at them. And then and then God coming and giving a big bear hug to these mercies that God is the father of, right? And I love God as mother, but that vision of God as father was healing in some way. It was undoing some trauma in me that... Um, allows me to see God in this new way that is incredibly impactful and incredibly powerful. And I think that, you know, that prayer, sitting in that prayer, sitting in that place when we're uncomfortable, can often help us to move beyond this this world of where we are limited in what we can think about God and what we can see about God, and instead begin to see God as so much more than just what fits within my comfort zone. When we take on our internalized beliefs, the beliefs we didn't even really know that we had, we just have reactions and then like take them and sit with them and process them, then we can move on into the world of creation and you're able to create a new vision, a new understanding of like you're empowered to take control and move through those negatives into something like peaceful and positive, like your relationship with God the Father. Yeah, I you know I love that um, that being recreated, right? That all of creation is constantly being recreated, right? That that rest is a period of recreation where my body is literally being recreated by receiving the rest that I need, right? My cells are regenerating themselves. They're, they're getting the nutrients that they need. All those sort of things are happening while I rest, right? And resting in God allows us to create these new things, this step up beyond the trauma that we were experiencing into something new, into a new dance with God that we get to explore and be crazy in and, <laughs> and all of these other things that also allow for the building of community and building of the world that we want to see that is beyond just the way that it has been, beyond the trauma that it has been beyond the misogyny that there's been before, beyond the um, homophobia and the abuse and all of those things that we had before into the kind of world that we actually want to see. I love talking about creation. God, at least God as I see him, he's a God of creation. And us being able to create, it's, I see that as a way that God has invited us to participate in this work of creation and to participate in making the world a better place and it's really like the ability to to create and to not only to to create tools and things but to create things that bring joy to us that's that truly is a godly power that that's been given to us well and and it's another way that god has descended to us right that it this you know that everything that all these three steps so far that we've seen are wrapped up in this idea of God coming to us, to being with us, and allowing us to participate in that part of God's divinity, right? where we're able to see that our purpose is not to get up there to defeat God by the power of our humanity. Our ultimate power as humanity is to realize that 
we are fully divine when we are fully human, not our humanity destroying the divinity that, that is in front of us. And that creates, I think, what Elle is about to go into is this fourth stage of prayer, um, this intimacy. Yeah, and the the fourth stage of this prayer is a wholeness with God, a oneness, like like full community, but it's also a full return to yourself, to your humanness. So it it completely puts your humanness and divinity in the same. It's the same. That's what makes us special. Yeah. <laughs> it, it reminds me of a like a like a crossover kind of with Buddhism, especially with step three, because the world of creation, you are casting away pieces of yourself to create something new, which means you're you're losing that attachment to like, oh, these these are the things that made you, but you realize that you you can be more than that. And that that just leads up to the full intimacy with God. And I, the thing that I like most about Jacob's Ladder is that it you ascend it and you descend from it. Like you are able to return back to the world in oneness to try to make it better. Like you, Micah, wanting to be a better father than your own father makes the world a better place. And and we all have that opportunity and capability, even when we have been through like the lowliest of things. Yeah, I, I think that one of the most beautiful parts of that is that like, especially because these are all connected, right? You're not going up the ladder and leaving behind the previous step, right? You still have to be stepping on that previous step to get there. And that first step of action, right, is is rooted in actually climbing the ladder by actually making it. Um, but all of the steps have action within them, right? The the step of formation is um, the self-examination where you have to be honest about who you are and honest about where you're at and how you're going to get to something deeper, right? And uh, which leads into this creation where you're creating something new, but not leaving behind the you that you previously were, right? It is, it is the you that you were being created in this new thing. But that intimacy is a complete presence of all of that in one moment, right? Where Walter Wink, one of my favorite theologians, talks about the fact that every institution is good and fallen and in the state of redemption, right? And most of the time, all three at once, right? Similarly, all of us are good and fallen and in need of redemption or in the process of redemption, right? And here we come and we are fully present with God. And that intimacy is making all of it good, right? Um, In a very physical way, right? I I just think back to this church that I I once belonged to, and it was a wonderful church for many, many, many reasons. One of my favorite parts was that there was a, there was a a boy who had Down syndrome. And, uh, and so he would go to the front and he would, while the sermon was going on, while the the ceremony was going on, um, he would bow. Uh, most of the time, rock back and forth and bow. And me coming out of several years of, of attending synagogue would watch that and think, he's davening. He is worshiping God 
in the way that he knows how, in a way that is self-stimulating, that is meeting his needs as a person. It is creating this intimacy with God, and God is sitting there embracing him completely and fully, not demanding that he change, but recognizing where he's at, which relates back to the story, right? God not demanding that Jacob change yet, but recognizing Jacob where he's at. And, you know, later on in the story, he will change Jacob, not by saying you're wrong and you have to be better, but instead by renaming him to Israel, the one who wrestles with God, because Jacob enters into this very physical prayer, this very physical transformation of the way that he is into something deeper. And uh, in the Midrash, the actual like prayer step for intimacy with God is standing and like it's a physical interaction as yeah. well. So that's, that's pretty interesting to me. I think if I'm, if I'm thinking of the same thing, it's, it's often described as the intimacy of a couple, right? Yes. It is a, yeah. an almost sexual experience, right? This, of, of this intimacy that is shared, um, which, you know, a lot of supposedly celibate monks and nuns um, had a very intimate connection with Jesus and a very intimate connection with God. <laughs> I did just want to go back to like just the pursuit of healing trauma and like what science has said about brain plasticity and everything. And I have to plug the book, The Body Keeps the Score, uh, for anybody who wants to read deeper into that. But when we are traumatized, our brains kind of get stuck in a fight, flight, freeze, fawn response, and we are repeating patterns that have helped us survive the trauma but do not serve us for daily life anymore. But when you do talk therapy, when you journal, when you pray and actually access the language part of your brain, you're able to rewire your brain into into self-healing, into uh, becoming plastic again so that you can start to give up these negative thought patterns you have about yourself and, and the shame that comes with trauma. I think something that has been really helpful in my healing about a lot of things is that anxiety, it was described to me once as this sort of tightening up chemical, like, or, or, or it causes you to tense up, right? And it literally causes your brain to tense up so that your brain gets stuck in certain patterns. And that's really helpful when the pattern we're trying to figure out is what are the shapes that are going to come and kill me in the night? But most of us don't have to worry about the shapes that are going to come and kill us in the night because we have a house, right? <laughs> that's not everyone, obviously, but most of us are safe most of the time. But our anxiety, which was once a really useful tool, is no longer nearly as useful. And so it literally stops the neuroplasticity of our brains. It stops our brains from being able to develop new thoughts. And that's all about maintaining control, right? Because if I I know how this is going to work, and I know exactly what to expect, and I know how to react to it, then I'm in control, right? It's just like the Tower of Babel, where some people were seeking control over a situation that they were fundamentally not going to have control over, and that resulted in their destruction, right? That resulted in their dissolution and their separation, because God basically had to wipe the brain clean of all the anxieties that it had built up and allow them to go free, right? And so I think, you know, entering into this moment of saying, at my lowest point, God is still going to reach out to me, allows us to give up some of that anxiety, 
right? Give up some of that control uh, because anxiety is ultimately about trying to have as much control as possible. And ironically, the anxiety that is from the fact that we're trying to have control often causes us to lose control over situations. Yeah. If there's one person that did, did have to worry about what shape would come and kill them in the night, that would be Jacob here. Yeah, that's true. And I, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think it, it's, it's possible, pretty likely, that this was the first time that he had to worry about that. It was like yeah. Abraham and Isaac, they were fairly well off, you could say. So I think we can assume that, that Jacob grew up doing pretty well, rather comfortable life, at least for the, the time. I mean, I'm I'm not going to discount uh, growing up under Rachel, who seems a little neurotic and anxious <laughs> herself. That that is true. <laughs> I I will not have you defame Rachel. She was sticking up for her boy. There was nothing wrong she with that. She had two boys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but she was sticking up for her boy. So. <laughs> But see, it's very unhealthy for a parent to show favoritism like that. Yes. But you know, that goes back that goes back to our discussion in the last episode, right? Is Rachel showing favor or is Jacob showing favor and Rachel's defensive reaction again a tr- an attempt to have control over a situation she ultimately doesn't have control over to favor Jacob in such a dramatic way. I don't know. After this last story, I see a little bit more of Laban's side of the family. Rachel. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> like, I, I just think it's the it, at least these four steps of this ladder. I think it's very interesting how ancient peoples still like sort of have a blueprint on trying to do some sort of self-healing mm. uh in a very traumatizing world because uh, the world has always been pretty traumatic, I'd say, yeah. at least theologically. Um, go go right back to Adam and Eve. Like, Yeah, I think we would understand so much of the Bible so much better if we understood the way that other people talked about their trauma, right? Like if we understood the fact that when there are these stories that are all about the total eradication of your enemies— when we know according to that same story that that didn't actually happen, like that is just a trauma response, right? That is a defensiveness that I don't think is a healthy reaction, but it's a human reaction (laughs) um, and a very natural human reaction to a lot of trauma, right? Where what we often read in the Psalms as Sheol, this concept of, of a murky gray death that is really, really taken more from, our understandings of Greek mythology than of Jewish mythology. And, you know, I I wonder, is that, and and I've done an examination of of the Hebrew and said, what if instead of talking about a place that's actually literal, the psalmists are just using this as a place to describe the depths of hell that it feels like to be going through a mental health crisis, right? Um, And, you know, there's, and, and demons are the greatest example. Like, who among us has had a mental health crisis and not felt like it's demons? Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> the closest that I've ever come to feeling like there, there are demons is when I had an anxiety attack that was so bad that I was undergoing sleep paralysis, right? And I was unable to move, but I was fully awake and fully conscious, or felt fully conscious of what was going on and felt completely 
out of control to save everyone I loved from, at that moment, I was convinced was dying and I was unable to do anything. And so, you know, I just think so many of these descriptions of lots of things in the Bible are people trying to talk about mental health and their own healing and their own processes of these things happening in a way that is just so culturally different from ours that we entirely miss the point, right? I love the phrase, in 2,000 years, people will not be able to understand the difference between a butt dial and a booty call. And that's why, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's why we have trouble interpreting the Bible, right? Is that we just don't have the cultural understandings to make a distinction between their equivalent of, are you actually talking about hell right now? Or are you just talking about the experience of being incredibly lonely and isolated? and feeling like no one's around to love you. Yeah, like, actual hellfire is not as scary as, like, the thought of, like, being utterly alone for the rest of my life. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. (laughs) The fact that self-emulation, like, by fire is a thing that people occasionally choose to do, but self-emulation by hiding in a closed box for the rest of time is not something that people choose to do, um, seems to... (laughs) indicate to me uh, that one is preferable to the other. (laughs) The show would be remiss if we, as good leftists, would not talk about the fact that the latter has been used to uphold this concept of the great chain of being. (laughs) This is where we need the soundboard. That's why it's primacy. (laughs) Yes, yes. The great chain of being is a feudalistic concept, right? It is the result of feudalism. It is the result of a hierarchical structure that is basically self-reinforcing and saying, look, this is how it's meant to be, right? They see this chain of being, right? These, These angels up there in the sky, and they look at, honestly, they look at a misreading of Augustine, right? And say that clearly the superior angels are up at the top and God is at the very top. And you go all the way down this thing until you get to lowly humans. And really the, the ladder continues to descend down and go not just into humans, but of course male humans are above female humans and below them are, uh, are the animals and they're differentiated according to what kind of animal they are and below them are are the vegetables and whatnot. And instead of looking at existence as a cycle, right, that is interdependent upon each other, it is this kind of dominion, right, where kings get to have dominion over you because they are higher on the great chain of being. And men get to have dominion over women because they are higher on the great chain of being. And all of these sorts of systems are established in part because of this story, right? Where we say, oh, Jacob is just so pathetic and God descends down to Jacob to say, I'm the one in control of your life. God is the one who will protect you. And if you don't follow me, then screw you, right? (laughs) But I think that that reading of the story is first off false for so many obvious reasons, but most importantly because every family of earth will be blessed because of you and your descendants, right? It is clearly God is descending here not to say, I am up here and you are below me, but to say that I am up here and I'm inviting everyone up here with me, right? I'm bringing everyone along, that even though your descendants will be like dust, Everyone will be blessed because of them. Everyone will be brought along because of my love for you that is descending in this moment. And so the great chain of being is just something that we have to resist, especially because it becomes the foundation of what else? But racism, right? Because racism and sexism and homophobia and capitalism 
and imperialism are all interwoven systems, right? You can't get rid of one without getting rid of all the others. And that is why our movement is about solidarity, right? <laughs> and why we started off this episode talking about universalism. How does it change our politics to truly believe that every single person will be with us in heaven? And whether or not you think that heaven is a real literal place, whether you think heaven is just the recapitulated earth, whether you think that heaven is just kind of a nirvana kind of state, if heaven is just some ethereal existence, or if heaven is the ultimate reunification of all people and God, what does it radically change about our politics to say no one is excluded from that? Even the jerk who just cut me off on the highway, even the jerk who has a Trump sticker on his car, even the jerk who is at a White Lives Matter rally, even all of those terrible people, even far more evil people than that, are going to be in heaven with us. And how does that change the way that we have to react to them? A reason that blatantly stood out to me as to why using this story to justify the great chain of being is absolutely absurd is the fact that the angels are going up and down the ladder are not fixed in place on the ladder. And I mean, how often do you see a lettuce just casually going up and becoming a squirrel? <laughs> does, does, doesn't work like that. Right? In, in my lifetime, I have never seen a lettuce become a squirrel. So therefore, using this story to justify the great chain of being is absurd. QED. <laughs> and uh, going all the way to the New Testament, into the book of John, there's, there's a little bit... John 1, 51, Jesus is talking. I assure you that you will see heaven open and God's angels going up to heaven and down to earth on the human one. So I think Jesus is kind of saying it's not a chain of like <laughs> being where there's people above each other, but something yeah. everybody ascends and descends on. Mm, yeah. Curious, racists. <laughs> <laughs> And that verse, I think, brings us to to another point of the story, right? Where we see here that in the Christian New Testament, that locus of the special place that God is very near to us is here in the person of Jesus, that God descended again from heaven in the person of Christ to become like one of us, to become one of us, to become the human one. Uh, which is a translation that's so much better than the Son of Man, right? <laughs> the, the human one that is fully human, right? And is fully divine because he's fully human, not in spite of being fully human. And here he's calling out to Nathaniel and saying, look, the foundation of our faith is that God saw, that, that Jacob saw God descending on this ladder, and you will see that as well in me. You've already seen my descension. You will also see my ascension back into heaven. I love that contrast between, in this story, it's Bethel, the, the house of God, versus where Jesus is from, the house of bread, where I believe Jesus becomes fully embodied in a piece of bread every Sunday, <laughs> um, and more often if I can get my priest to give me Mass. So, <laughs> I, When I came to this verse, I was, did, did a lot of digging and just like trying to figure out so Jesus says this to Nathaniel. This is like right after Nathaniel's met him. Like, what what is Jesus trying to say? And the the interpretation that I don't know felt the best to me just before this. Nathaniel they had a brief interaction, and Nathaniel says, "Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel." And this interpretation that I read is Nathaniel had this vision of Jesus as this physical, like literal king, someone who would 
you know, toss out the Romans and reestablish the the kingdom of Israel, reestablish the kingdom of Judah. And then Jesus kind of to correct him, he says, shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man or upon the human one. And kind of uh, to correct Nathaniel that not necessarily here to just physically overthrow the Romans, but I'm here to be well, like this. Well, the Roman Empire hasn't fallen yet. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> We're still working on it. <laughs> but Jesus, he's, he's calling back to this, this story of Jacob, and he's saying, I am here to be this connection with heaven. And that's, that is the role of, of the Messiah, is to, yeah. to connect us, mankind, humanity, and give us that, that access to heaven, that, that ladder, that yeah. staircase that Jacob saw, so that through Christ we can you know, re, reunite, we can have that intimacy with God again. We we do have about nineteen points on this on this script, um, and I am I am far too tired to get to very many of them. But I think that the the thing that I am really interested in ending here with is the fact that in this story we have this this place um, called Luz, right? This place that is literally in the Hebrew crooked, broken, corrupted, and it is turned into Bethel, the house of God. Right? that is the place where Jacob finds himself at the depth of his worst moment, where he is without anything. He's without hope. He's without really a chance of survival on his own. And that is where God chooses to show up. That is where God chooses to live. Not in the hopeful, not in the wealthy, not in the powerful, but God chooses to show up in these people who are left behind and left out. And Spencer, you pointed out that this seems to influence Paul in Philippians, where he writes, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people, right? That that language of crooked is very much here, right, in this story. Be the people of God. Be the house of God. Be the source of love in your community in a world that seems determined to kill love, right? And in fact, did kill love, killed the very manifestation of, of love that descended to earth because he dared to challenge the systems of power that were anxiously holding on to control. All of those systems would be transformed if instead we chose to love. And I, I don't mean to say anything about tactics here and how we bring about the revolution, but I think that if a revolution is happening without love, it's just going to fall. It, it's just going to replace the current system with something that's just as bad. Violence begets violence, and the yes. only the only way to stop violence is to not engage with it. The thing about Jesus, the way, <laughs> the way I like to see Jesus is he's he's not my Messiah because he grants me access to God. That's all on me. But he's my Messiah because he has taught me ways to love and ways to, like, I I think a lot of my self-healing came from engaging with the New Testament text more. Not that that's a solution for everybody, but reading the Sermon on the Mount and actually, like, taking that in a bit more. Happy are the people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are the people who grieve because they will be made glad. Happy are the people who are humble because they will inherit the earth. 
Happy are the people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, because they will be fed until they are full. Happy are the people who show mercy, because they will receive mercy. Happy are the people who have pure hearts, because they will see God. Happy are the people who make peace, because they will be called God's children. Happy are the people whose lives are harassed because they are righteous, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. All that really connects with being the broken and the crooked to me. Yeah. And that it's it's an okay place to start with. Yeah. And as I'm thinking about, you know, these <laughs> these things, it very much so brings me back to that sort of youth group message that is true, despite it being a youth group message, <laughs> um, <laughs> where there's this Japanese art form, which is when you have a broken vessel, you go and you repair it with gold called Kintsugi. Please, please correct me on my pronunciation because I'm absolutely certain I'm not pronouncing that correctly. It is this beautiful transformation of something that was once broken, something that was once crooked, into a new whole. And that's not erasing the scars, right? It's not erasing the fact that we are people who are traumatized, right? It's addressing our trauma. It's addressing the brokenness we have so that we are able to continue to hold water, so that we are able to hold a capacity for love, so that we are able to take these actions that are what it means to live in heaven. I think that everyone is saved from hell. That doesn't mean that everyone exists in heaven to the same degree. <laughs> because it is about how we turn. It is about how we embrace love. It is about how we care for other people that makes all the difference and makes us fully human. And it's how we reach God on that ladder where God has come down to us to lead us all back up to unity with God. And I think that that is the world that we're trying to build with a socialist revolution, right? Is one where we are able to be free of all of these other systems of oppression, all of these other problems, so that we can just love each other and be in as much heaven as we can possibly be. That comment on unity, it reminded me of, of a, another note, one of the, the Jewish commentaries, the commentary by Rashi that I was reading on this story. Rashi, he was, he was noticing that in the story, uh, at least in the Hebrew, it says that when Jacob laid down, he laid down on the stones of that place. He took of the stones at that place. But then when he woke up, and it talks about the stone later in the story, it says that Jacob took the stone that was his pillow. So suddenly it's, it's one stone. So Rashi's explanation for this was that all these these many stones that Jacob had put out to, to lay on, they were all fighting one with another to have the right to be the one that was under the prophet's head. And when God saw them fighting one with another, he decided that they they needed to be united. He he fused them into one. So when when Jacob woke up he he found that these many stones had become one, had become united. And I, I think it's just a an interesting interesting lesson of how how God can unite us, and then only once we're united together, once we love one another, then we can be set up as a sacred pillar like this stone was, and that we can we can become the house of God. If we are to heal the intergenerational and collective traumas that we carry into this violent, terrible world, we have to start with addressing ourselves first, because that's the only thing that's directly in our control. And I believe over time, 
we'll make that better world. It might take generations, but it's on God's time scale, not <laughs> ours. Yeah. I think my biggest takeaway from this story is just a reminder that the truly greatest praxis that we have is all rooted in love. The most influential movement, I think, of the last century, radical leftist movement, at least in the United States, was the Black Panthers, and they were motivated by the desire to feed children and take care of the elderly, and they changed the world because of it. I think that the fight for civil rights was motivated by a love for our fellow human being. The fight for women's equality was motivated by a love for our fellow human being. I think that the fight against capitalism has to be rooted in a love for our fellow human being, not some indignation about our own rightness, but a recognition of the fact that we are all broken and that we have all been even more broken by the system under which we live, and that we'll never be free, never be free to truly love each other while we exist in this system. But I think that taking the tactics of that system is not going to be the most effective way to dismantle it. But as you always know, I'm open <laughs> to being wrong. I think ultimately though, that we get to be a part of what God is doing. That God comes and reaches us at our lowest point when we have been kicked out of our family or we're running for our lives. And that is when God says, every family on earth will be blessed because of you and your people. You know who else God says that to is someone that I pray about every day, Mary, who had the faithfulness as a very young person to accept the thing before her, to take the action she needed to take to build a truly revolutionary world. So thank you, dear listeners for being a part of this conversation. Thank you, Al and Spencer, as always. I so appreciate that you gave me a script with 19 points <laughs> and we only had the time to delve into four of them because they were so good that we wanted to, <laughs> that we wanted to address this. Um, we're not even going to get into the fact that the Stone of Schoon is definitely not Jacob's Pillow and instead a really interesting way that the uh, establishment of the United Kingdom were trying to claim the uh, roots of Judaism in a really anti-Semitic fashion uh, to justify themselves. Uh, we'll just leave that totally on the side. Uh, <laughs> and instead say thank you, my friends, for being a part of this conversation. And thank you, dear listener, for continuing to support us and be alongside us. 27 episodes. I honestly didn't think we were going to make it past three, but the community that we have built together is so, so worthwhile. And I just, I love y'all and appreciate you for being here. So thank you. And now, Pass Micah. Take it away. Thank you, Future Micah, and of course you, our wonderful listener. Together we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord, or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go. Knowing that God is reaching out to transform you, no matter who you are, where you're at, how alone you may feel, God is turning to you to say that everyone on the earth will be blessed because of you and your people.
Inshallah. That's why it's supremacy, Charlie. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, that's like, where, that's going to be the bong hit. <laughs> <laughs>